Welcome to PwC IFRS Talks, your source of all things IFRS, technical accounting matters, business issues and regulatory updates. I'm your host, Dave Walters. In today's episode, I'm joined by Tony DeBell, who's our global accounting leader for the RLO team, and he's going to be talking about the subject of deferred taxes. So please do keep listening for the next 20 minutes as we get some insight on this most challenging of standards. So, uh, Tony, welcome. Thank you. Your starter for 10, can, can you give the one-minute summary of IS-12 for those who need a reminder about it? Yeah, and you might be surprised to hear me say this, but I think there's a principle that underpins pretty much all of the guidance in IS-12. That principle is that you account for the tax consequences of recovering assets or settling liabilities at their carrying value. The logic is that if you recover an asset for its carrying value or settle a liability for its carrying value, there's not going to be a gain or a loss. Mm which implies there should be no tax consequence. But in many situations, there is a tax consequence, largely because some items get recognised for tax purposes in different periods to those in which they get recognised for accounting purposes. So that is really the principle in IS-12, is that you account for the tax consequences of recovering an asset or settling a liability for its carrying value. So a fairly straightforward principle. Mm -hmm. But as with any principle, are there complications? There are. I mean, the the principle has remained relevant for as long as we've had IS-12. Which is a long time, it is. It It is an old standard. And tax law continues to be complex. Maybe it's, in some cases, it's becoming more complex. There are a variety of different rules and regulations around the world. Items continue to be recognised for tax purposes and accounting purposes in different periods. So I think... Some might question whether deferred tax is an asset or a liability. Does it meet the definition in the framework? But by and large, I think people are content with that principle that underpins IS-12. I think the complexity arises from the IASB trying to address particular situations over a number of years. So we have a pretty clear underlying principle. But as the IASB over the years has addressed specific questions... We also have a series of rules Mm. and a series of exceptions to the principle. And that's what can make IS-12 challenging. So, for example, deferred tax is not discounted. Does that really provide useful information, given the assets and liabilities are very long-tailed? IS-12 tells us that, for the most part, you don't need to recognise the deferred tax consequences of recovering the investment in a subsidiary. Again, is that necessarily useful? Do we need an exception? Deferred tax is not recognised on initial recognition. There's a very good reason for doing that. But again, it's an it's an exception. Why should I be told to assume that for tax purposes, an investment property is recovered through sale? And those are just some examples of why we have an underlying principle. But then the complexity and the challenge comes from rules and exceptions. So we've had, I mean, the standard has been around for... 40 years. I think it's its, it's, it's 40th it's birthday party this indeed. year. I hope somebody's throwing a, a really big party at the yep. uh, headquarters of the ISB. But in 40 years, we've got an underlying principle and an increasing number of exceptions yes. to that principle. And if we look at the global landscape, has it become harder to apply IS-12 because tax law is becoming more complicated? I think the 
The growing complexity of tax law creates challenges. And I, I think a global tax standard has challenges inevitably because it mm. can't address the particular features yes. of particular tax laws. And in fact, some of those exceptions that I talked about earlier were created in response to something specific in jurisdiction X, but that's not necessarily going to apply in in jurisdiction Y. And I think some of the challenges we have as, say, tax law becomes more and more complex, and they begin with a very simple question. Mm. Is it an income tax or not? There are lots of taxes around the world that are maybe the higher of something based on income uh, and something that's based on something else altogether. So yeah. what's in the scope of the standard? And then how does a particular feature of a particular law relate to the, the underlying principle in IS-12? And I think about uh, maybe three good examples of where we've seen challenges applying the standard. I think people will generally be aware there was a wholesale revision of US tax law mm. a couple of years ago. So we then had to sit down, figure out how does that fit in with the principles that sit in IS-12. Um, there's been a wholesale revision of Swiss tax law. It's currently ongoing this year. Same, same question. And then... At some stage, um, the UK is going to leave the EU, and that means there's a whole raft of uh, tax laws that apply to transactions between EU entities Hmm. that will no longer apply. And so uh, we 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 have the position of increasingly complex tax law at a jurisdiction level, but a single standard with a single set of principles that we have to try and fit it into when we do the accounting globally. And I guess the challenge for many of our listeners here who, who would be involved in multinational groups is that obviously every tax law is different. Yes. Um, uh, and some of them are evolving in different ways at a different, a different yes. pace. Uh, so for, for the accountants who have to stay on top of the IS-12 accounting, that, that presents its own set of challenges. It does. It, 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 is, it is complex because you can't have, well, there is not, a standard that's fitted to particular tax mm. legislation. So in, in my IFRS top trumps that I designed a couple of years ago, I think I gave IS-12 a score of 11 out of 10 uh, <laughs> on, on the grounds that it, for complexity, uh, yeah. on, on the grounds that uh, the standard was reasonably complex and the law we were yeah. trying to apply it to is reasonably complex. Do you, do you agree with an 11 out of 10 rating? I do. I, 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 I think it's, it, it's not necessarily wholly attributable to IS-12. I think at times IS-12 gets a bad press. I would say that, wouldn't I? Um, but I think it also reflects the, the complexity of the underlying tax laws. Excellent. Uh, so I'm, I'm pleased to see I now have endorsement of the scoring system for, for that particular card. So, so uh, obviously one of the reasons we're talking about IS-12 is, uh, is to celebrate its 40th birthday, but actually to recognise there are a few things that have changed Yep. Uh, recently. So so uh, in relation to accounting uh, under IS-12, are there, is there any recent developments you'd like to call out? Uh, yeah, probably to? Uh, top of the list is a thing called IFRI 23, which is effective for the first time this year. Uh, and we've probably said a dozen times each that tax law is complex during the, during the course of the, of the last 10 minutes. And one consequence of complex tax laws is it is not always clear how those tax laws apply to a given transaction or a given set of transactions. Mm. And so that can make it difficult to decide, well, just based on last year's profit, how much tax do I owe? Or what are the deferred tax consequences of a particular transaction? Until this year, IS-12 has not dealt specifically with the accounting for uncertainties about the application of the standard. Is this expense deductible? 
is this particular income item taxable? Mm. IFRIC 23 provides a comprehensive model. So it, it interprets a couple of paragraphs in IS 12 and provides a comprehensive model that will allow companies to determine their accounting for mm. tax uncertainties. And so the things that, that, that IFRIC 23 uh, provides, firstly, it deals with the unit of account. When do you combine tax uncertainties? When do you look at them separately for the purposes of, of determining the outcome? Mm. Uh, and it says that you consider the way the tax law works, the way the tax authority deals with the tax law, the way the company prepares its tax return, and take all of that into account to determine whether or not you look at things individually or collectively. Um, IFRIC 23 makes it clear that you assume that the tax authority knows all. Hmm. So you can't take the detection risk, the possibility that uh, the tax man won't spot it, into account in doing your accounting. IFRIC 23 provides us with a recognition threshold. Uh, and this applies equally to both uh, assets and liabilities. It says you have to assess whether the position that a company has taken or will take on its tax return is more likely than not to be sustained based mm. on the tax legislation. If it is more likely than not to be sustained, base your accounting on the tax return. If it is not more likely than not to be sustained, then you need to do your accounting on the basis that the tax authority will not accept it, which would typically mean a bigger liability or a smaller asset. But I guess the important point there is the symmetry for asset and liability. Absolutely. So, so accountants are quite used to applying a different recognition threshold for assets. You know, you might apply virtually certain, for example, yep. in an IS 37 world, whereas here it's explicit it if, is. If you make a payment on account to the tax authorities, but you think it's more likely than not that you will end up getting yep. that back because you'll win the un tax case around the uncertainty, you would continue to recognise that asset. You would. And I think because it's interpreting a paragraph in IS 12 that says that uh, you recognise the tax that you expect to pay, yep. it's saying that you apply a threshold of more likely than not. Okay. Um, we have a model for recognising the consequences. So let's assume that um, management concludes it is more likely than not that the tax authority will not accept its position and concludes there needs to be um, a further liability because of that. And then that's measured at either the most likely amount or the expected value. But that's not a policy choice. That's uh, what is the best predictor of the final outcome. And so you might say that something that's binary, you'd mm. use the most likely amount. Something where there's a range of possible outcomes, you yeah. probably end up using an expected value. So, so again, there that might vary by tax authority depending on the way it that might. they approach the it might. resolution of issues. It might, and so that's a, it, it becomes very much an entity-specific, yeah. tax authority-specific calculation. Um, and finally, um, there's some guidance on what's a change in circumstance. So you need to revisit. The judgments management needs to revisit its judgments whenever there is a change in circumstances. Uh, but something that um, is specific uh, is that the tax authority not identifying an issue in a given year is not a change in circumstances in isolation. So the fact that a position was taken, the tax authority didn't challenge it last year, doesn't mean you can assume the tax authority will never challenge it. So the tax authorities assume to have complete knowledge and the ability to challenge until such time as it no longer has that ability 
perhaps because the statute of limitations on that particular year has run. So, so that's, that's the interpretation. It's effective for the first time this year. And for some companies, they're going to have to change the way they think about tax uncertainties. Because in the past, I guess some companies have, have approached it with a, some maybe some specific provisions and then a general overlay yes. for, for prudence. That, that's no longer possible under, no. under the interpretation. No, it, 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 it's not possible to say there's a whole series of tax exposures around the world and I'll have a provision of blob. I think the requirement is to look at each of those exposures, apply the unit of account guidance. And it's very, very unlikely, if not impossible, you could combine exposures in different countries under mm. the unit of account guidance mm. and then apply the recognition and measurement model. Excellent. So that's a challenge for accountants yep. for this year and indeed the tax advisors. Mm-hmm. And I would imagine the regulators will be looking at how that has been applied when we yes. come to, to the next financial year's reviews. Mm-hmm. In the meantime, are there any areas in the world of uh, deferred tax or income taxes that regulators are focusing on? Yes, I, I, I think very, very specifically. Um, and if I can focus on, on Europe, although I think the, um, the issues that have been considered uh, within the EU are issues that have a wider um, applicability. So the Umbrella European Securities Regulator, ESMA, um, has in the past publicly expressed concern at the way uh, management sometimes considers the recoverability of deferred tax assets. So there's a principle in, in IS-12 that says you recognise a deferred tax asset if it's more likely than not that there'll be sufficient profit to recover that deferred tax asset, that recent losses are strong evidence that there won't be sufficient profit and that you therefore need convincing mm. evidence to be able to recognise the deferred tax asset. And it uses the word convincing in it the does. standard. The standard uses the word convincing. doesn't tell you what convincing is, but <laughs> yeah. it, it it's, like it's clearly says, hey, stop and think. Yeah. Uh, and I think that, that's what the word convincing is about. And so ESMA's recently issued a public statement in which it sort of reiterates its concern about the degree to which the analysis is is always robust uh, and the degree to which maybe the past is assumed to have sort of no, uh, no, no impact on the future. And it has made a public statement about factors that entities might consider when they are considering the recoverability of, of, of a deferred tax asset. Um, firstly, around the probability of future profits. Uh, and they... And they give folks a steer by saying that you've got to balance positive and negative evidence. Operating losses in the near past mm-hmm. are pretty strong negative evidence. And so you need some powerful positive evidence. You can't simply assume because you're a going concern and uh, tax losses don't expire that that gives you convincing evidence. There needs to be more than that. There needs to be more than that. I think they've said when folks are looking at the forecasts of the future there needs to be a solid basis for the, um, for the estimates. Uh, for example, they focus on um, non-recurring items and how often non-recurring items recur, recur mm. uh, and, and so on. And they've, uh, when they, they then go on to talk a little bit about convincing evidence. And for example, when they get onto, onto um, convincing evidence, they say, well, um, convincing evidence should really be objective. Losses in the past are more objective than what, what might happen in the future. Uh, maybe you shouldn't be including things in your projections you can't control. 
like a business combination or a disposal or something that has not yet happened. The models are different, but the underlying assumptions in the impairment test Mm. ought to be consistent with the assumptions you're making about the recoverability of, of deferred tax assets. So there's a lot of good thoughts in it. Um, if I have one one reservation about it, it's um, the analysis is is a bit one-sided, in that it focuses very much on being conservative and applying rigor to determining whether an asset should be recognised, and expresses concern perhaps about going beyond the planning cycle. Um, now, as a as a IS twelve geek, I would say there is an equal sin. Hmm. which is not recognising a deferred tax asset, you should, because the impact of that is to artificially uh, understate the effective tax rate. And so I just wonder if the analysis is slightly one-sided, and it might have been better to say that actually IS-12 doesn't tell you to put a time limit on projections, Hmm. uh, and that it is just as bad to understate as to overstate a deferred tax asset. So so they haven't said that the, the... It's wrong to apply a time limit, which some legacy gaps did apply mm. a time limit. For the avoidance of doubt, that time limit is not in no. IS-12. does not have a time limit, and you're right, there were some legacy gaps that did. Okay. Yeah. So moving on from the regulator's focus, yeah. we, do we have any amendments coming? Yeah. So um, I guess everybody's aware that um, IFRS 16, uh, the leasing standard, applies this year. Uh, and that as a result, companies are likely to have uh, a lot more uh, right-of-use assets and lease liabilities on the books than they did previously. Uh, And an issue that's been kicking around probably since IFRS was adopted throughout most of the world 14 or 15 years ago is that IS-12 does not address specifically the accounting when uh, a single transaction gives rise to the recognition of an asset and a liability. So a right-of-use asset and a lease liability, or maybe um, some PP&E and a decommissioning liability. And there is diversity in practice. There are a number of approaches that are applied in practice at the moment or in the past under combination of the old leases standard and IS-12. And this, this question was submitted to the Interpretations Committee. And the Interpretations Committee recommended to the ISB that the standard should be amended. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the ISB agrees. And so there is an exposure draft that is currently out, which proposes some changes to IS-12 to address the issue. Uh, And the model that, that the ISB has proposed is to say, well, management first has to decide what the tax deductions relate to. So assume there's a tax deduction for lease payments or there's a tax deduction for the costs of decommissioning. Does that tax deduction relate to the asset or to the liability? Right. If the tax deduction relates to the asset, the accounting is straightforward because on initial recognition, there's no temporary difference on the asset. Carrying value is equal to future tax deductions. Yeah. There's no uh, temporary difference on the liability because there will never be a tax deduction for the liability. Yeah. So that's simple. And very the, straightforward. Very straightforward. The model in IS-12 works without a problem. If, on the other hand, you conclude, as you might say, for example, with a decommissioning liability, that the deduction is really for the liability when you incur those costs. Yeah. In that case, you have an equal and opposite temporary difference because you've got an asset with no tax base and you've got a liability with no tax base. So you've got two temporary differences. What do I do? Um, 
The proposal is that the initial recognition exception in IAS 12 is narrow, so it does not apply when there is an equal and opposite temporary difference. So there would be an exception to the exception? There would. The ISB would tell you that's a narrowing of the exception, rather than an exception to the exception. (laughs) For understandable reasons. Indeed. But the initial recognition exception would not apply. You would recognise the deferred tax for both temporary differences. Uh, The default position in IS-12 is that's through the income statement, but of course it would offset. Then you have an asset and a liability, and they would unwind in the future as the accounting asset and the accounting liability change. Um, I think the next step in the process is to say you've got a model that, that deals when there's an equal and opposite temporary difference. What if it's not equal and opposite? And here the proposal is the initial recognition exception applies in the usual way. Right. So if there were some initial direct costs associated with the lease uh, that meant the right of use asset is bigger than the lease liability, in that circumstance, you would apply the initial recognition exception in the usual way to the initial direct expenses. Right. One more potential um, complication, and I think we're back into the world of um, exceptions and rules here. Um, it is possible that you have an equal and opposite temporary difference, but you don't have an equal and opposite deferred tax asset and liability. And that's because the deferred tax asset is only recognised if it's probable it will be recovered. Yes. So let's assume this is a decommissioning liability and you're going to spend the decommissioning liability in 20 years. You might conclude that it's not probable there's going to be a profit in 20 years, so you don't book the asset. In that circumstance, the... um, The proposed amendment says you don't book the liability because if you end up with asset and liability being unequal, you get the problem that the initial recognition exception is designed to solve. Mm. So my sense of this is that it is a sensible solution to an area in which there are um, uh, currently conflicting views. Mm. I think there are a couple of challenges with it. I think the first thing is the proposal doesn't really explain how you decide whether the tax deductions apply to the asset or to the liability. Mm. Uh, and I also wonder whether the, the, the board could just explain in a bit more detail um, the subsequent accounting if you end up in a situation where you don't recognise the asset because it's not recoverable and then don't recognise the liability. But, um, so that's out for comment till November. So if people have got strong feelings, they've got uh, till November to get to, them to write to the IASB, and it will become effective, subject to comments at some stage in the future. But probably just a last thought on uh, deferred taxes and, and, uh, and leases is that this will become effective at some stage in the future. But still need to think about what deferred tax accounting you're going to do for your leases now. Now, now you've got them on your books now. Absolutely right. Mm-hmm. So if people are selecting a policy, they might want to have a very good look at where the direction of travel is. I agree. To, uh, yes. to avoid having a restatement in a couple of years' time when it becomes yep. effective. Excellent. Tony, thank you very much for that canter through the mm-hmm. sometimes challenging world of, of IS-12. Uh, another feature of the top trump scoring was percentage likelihood of tears. And I, I awarded IS-12 110% in that category. <laughs> Do you think that was fair? Uh, I'm not sure I think it's fair. It's, it's complex, but I think if you, if you take the time to work through it, it's not as bad as all that. Excellent. And with that, Ray, a note of optimism from, <laughs> from Tony. I would uh, like to thank him for his contribution to this, uh, this webcast. 
so that's all we've got time for this time. There'll be another uh, podcast in a, in a couple of weeks' time. In the meantime, if you've got uh, questions, uh, do uh, have a look on PwC Inform. Uh, there are more podcasts available on pwc.com forward slash IFRS. And in the meantime, uh, happy accounting. The preceding programme was brought to you by PricewaterhouseCoopers LLP. This content is for general information purposes and is not a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.